And now, back to Washington Post Live. Welcome back. I'm Heather Long, an editorial writer and columnist here at the Washington Post. And we are talking about the supply chain gridlock and crisis. My next guest actually has supply chain in his title. Uh, That is John Drake, the vice president for supply chain policy at the U.S. Chamber of Commerce. Welcome, John. Good to have you. Thank you for having me. Good morning. So very excited to talk to you and hear the latest that you're hearing from the business community. I know you're talking to business leaders uh, pretty much every day. Obviously, you called it a crisis. Everybody was feeling that uh, earlier this fall. Are, is, is, are your conversations any more encouraging? Are people seeing some improvements or do we still have a long way to go? You know, we're seeing improvements. I think peak rates uh, were probably peaked in September of October of this year. Um, But, you know, I think there's still a lot of headwinds ahead of us. I think there's still a lot of challenges in front of us. And I think, you know, there's still a lot to be done. Uh, Most importantly, I think we have to get through this holiday shopping season. Uh, But, you know, we also need to be taking this uh, this current crisis as an opportunity to make the changes that I think that we need to be making over the long term to ensure that we don't see this this uh, crisis uh, pop back up in the years ahead. Yeah. Um, I'm curious to get your take. We just were speaking with Gene Soroka. I know you know him, the executive director of the Port of Los Angeles. He was really emphasizing the challenges they're seeing with not having enough warehouse workers, not having enough truck drivers, probably feeling they could even unload and move more cargo if, if there was fuller staffing in those areas. What are you hearing from the business community, what does business leaders see as the biggest challenges and hurdles right now? Well, you know, I think it's I think it's important to emphasize that there's not one specific thing that is overwhelming the entire supply chain, right? So the current shortages that we're seeing in the trucking side uh, are, are certainly real. They're acute. Uh, we had a truck driver shortage before this current crisis. Um, so it's not, but I think it's also important to take into account that everything is completely over- overloaded right now. And uh, and that's, I think, bottom line, the biggest contributor to the, the challenge we're having right, right now. But I think looking ahead, um, you know, Gene's absolutely right that we have to be looking at ways to improve the data sharing and collection uh, across all players so that everyone has a better sense of how the supply chain is working as a whole. And also looking at productivity, getting our ports to work faster and better. Uh, if, you know, so, Gene said this multiple times, Port of LA and Long Beach, they're responsible for 40% of all imports coming to the United States. But if you look at how those two ports are ranked worldwide, uh, the Port of LA is ranked 328th and the Port of Long Beach is ranked 331 out of 351 ports worldwide in terms of productivity. And by productivity, what that means is how quickly uh, a, a port can unload an ocean ship that's come in and get that ship underway to where it ultimately needs to go next. Uh, and we, frankly, the United States is really behind a lot of other countries uh, worldwide in terms of how well our ports operate. And we need to really kind of double, double down and, and focus on how to, how to improve that. And do you think that the infrastructure bill will help with that, that money that, that was just approved by Congress, or, or is there something else that needs to be done to get that efficiency and productivity higher? You know, uh, there's a number of things. One, the infrastructure bill was incredibly important, and we were so happy to see that enacting the law. Um, frankly, we need to see more of that coming out of Congress. It's really important that we invest in our infrastructure. Uh, our infrastructure is 
foundational uh, to the success of our economy uh, and to our competitiveness worldwide. But we also need to be looking at how to get, you know, but we also need to be looking to better utilize the existing infrastructure at our ports. And when you're talking about productivity, I think bottom line for us, uh, that means getting more automation and other tools in place uh, to get those ports uh, moving faster. A lot of our ports here in the US, they're they're very manual based. Um, you've got a lot of uh, uh, cranes that are operating manually. Uh, you've got, you know, uh, everything bottom line. Uh, and what we need to be doing instead is looking at how to get more automation, uh, more computer technology, more AI into the mix uh, to make those moves faster. Got it. Uh, I want to talk more about some of those future changes that are needed in a minute, but obviously on everyone's minds and I know on yours, are how do we get through the next few months? Um, can you talk me through what your prediction is for 2022? You could hear uh, Gene sort of say that he's hoping the backlog will really um, go away almost maybe by June or July of next year. Is that consistent with what you're hearing and, and what you think will play out? You know, we're taking a little bit of a wait and see approach. Um, I think we're, we want to see how consumer spending uh, how that continues to go. If it remains strong, you know, I think we fully expect that the amount of imports that are coming to our country will will continue to be strong. Um, that's going to continue to place challenges at our at our ports uh, and our supply chain as a whole to move those goods to where they ultimately need to go. Uh, if it's to retail shelves or your front doorstep, um, but you know, there's also some other headwinds that I think are in front of us as well going to next year. Most importantly, and one that we're watching very closely, uh, is the upcoming labor uh, negotiations between the ports on the West Coast and the Longshoremen. And let, let's be clear about this. The Longshoremen, uh, the men and women who are working the ports on the West Coast have really been doing uh, double time over the last uh, few months to make sure our ports are working as well as they can and be getting goods off those ships and where they ultimately need to go. But they do have a labor contract that's set to be renewed next summer. And these contracts typically will set pay and working conditions for the next five or six years. So it's going to be a very high stress environment and there's going to be a lot at stake. So if you look at how uh, previous negotiations have gone, it's not uncommon to see work slowdowns. Um, sometimes you'll hear threats of a strike. Uh, you know, I know in 2002, 2003, I think the uh, Taft-Hartley uh, Act was, was enacted uh, in response to how the negotiations were going. So we're really paying very close attention to see how those uh, negotiations unfold. We think it's really important to have those negotiations resolved as quickly as possible so that there is no uh, so that there is no interruption in service uh, and so that the business community and US consumers can take confidence in knowing that goods are moving as quickly as possible through their ports. And what about um, the pres President Biden obviously made a big big statement that he wanted ports to be running 24-7 to try to move some of this backlog along. Um, has that made any difference? And is there anything else that the chamber is urging uh, the White House or state governments to do in the short term? You know, we think we ultimately need to get to 24 seven. Um, and Gene was absolutely right. Not every, uh, I think there is one terminal at the, both the Port of LA and Long Beach that's uh, is somewhere close to 24 seven operations today. Um, but ultimately the entire supply chain should be 24 seven. And there's no reason why we can't get there over time. Um, you know, the big challenge is for us, 
are getting the schedules to align. Uh, we already have segments uh, of the supply chain, for example, the railroad industry that's 24-7, uh, you know, but we also need to look at the other barriers that are preventing other segments of the supply chain industry from moving to 24-7 operations as well. Getting more workers in the mix is certainly important uh, so that we can boost up our warehouse uh, uh, workforce as well as our trucking workforce. But at the end of the day, 24-7 um, is where we need to be. And I guess, is there anything that government needs to do there? Or is that really just the question of these private employers getting the workforce up enough to be able to support that? You know, I, I think going back to the infrastructure bill that was just passed by Congress, uh, there's an opportunity there, I think, for the states to begin looking at ports as essentially what they are today, economic centers, but making investment decisions solely around uh, boosting up how well they are able to perform and the infrastructure investments like the roads, the railroads, uh, the bridges and so on that serve those ports. Too often today, we're seeing investments at the state and local level that are more geared towards serving specific constituent interests, right? So transit projects. Um, but oftentimes it's much more difficult for a port uh, or for another supply chain uh, stakeholder to make the case for why freight infrastructure needs to be invested in. We think there's a real important opportunity and a new opportunity in this new infrastructure bill to raise the level, to raise the profile uh, of freight projects uh, as part of the state and local investment decision-making process and to make them more attractive. And hopefully what that will do is help, uh, help bring more money towards supports and to the infrastructure that serves them and make them run more efficiently. So I think to your question, the states and I think local governments really taking a much harder look uh, at investing, taking their uh, federal dollars and investing into their uh, their ports themselves. Hmm. Um, as you might imagine, there's a lot of re huge reader interest in the supply chain topic. Uh, and I want to read one of the questions that, that came in. This is from uh, Michael Levine from Maryland. He asks, why was this not foreseeable and planned for? You know, as you and I were talking about earlier, there's been um, talk about trucker shortages for years. You know, some of the stuff has been widely known for a long time. Why couldn't we plan better for what's going on? Well, I th so if you go back to March of 2020, when we were really kind of, when, when COVID was really, frankly, taking over, uh, there was a lot of folks who believed that consumer spending was just going to crater. And a lot of businesses took those initial reports uh, from those economists, from those, uh, you know, and from initial consumer dropdowns to make planning decisions, assuming the worst, assuming that consumer spending was going to crater and it wouldn't be coming back anytime soon. And so because of that, you saw a cascade of events that followed from that. Um, a lot of businesses, they either stopped or they discontinued uh, 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 service buys, everything from semiconductors um, to other to other orders. Uh, and what followed from that was you had truckers who were laid off. So for example, you had in 2020, three times the amount of truck uh, truckers went out of business than any given year. Uh, you had other employees who were laid off as well. Um, you know, but what happened very quickly after that, that moment where a lot of folks were predicting that the economy was gonna be in free fall and stay very weak for a good number of months, is that consumer spending returned. Uh, you had, uh, and it not only returned, but uh, it actually shifted quite a bit. So people who were no longer going out 
and going to restaurants, for example, or they weren't going out to shows or they weren't traveling. They were taking that discretionary income and instead uh, transferring it to retail shopping, uh, online purchases, uh, you know, home improvement projects. And so this, I think, took a lot of folks uh, by surprise to a certain extent. And not only was, but not only was this spending increased, but it was it increased well above the historical levels and what we were predicting was going to take place over the next five or six years. So spending well above uh, what anybody predicted. And I think this, so not only did this take a lot of folks off guard, but it was also one of these things where because the workforce wasn't aligned with where these new demands were going to be, um, a lot of our economy simply was not situated to take advantage of these shifts in consumer spending. Yeah, yep. Uh, definitely that wasn't anticipated to this degree on the goods spending. And nobody knows how long it'll last either. How, how you know, Are people going to get sick of renovating at home and building decks, or are they going to keep wanting to do it? It's, it's hard to know. Um, do, was the chamber supportive of that calls to use the National Guard or the military at some of these port facilities to try to help you know, drive some trucks or help in the warehouses? Do you think that would make any difference? Well, let me tell you what we know. Um, so uh, back in the 1990s, uh, majority of the sort of long haul trucking operations uh, that were done by the military were outsourced to the private sector. And today, a lot of the drivers who do movements for the National Guard for the military are in fact truck drivers during their day jobs. So we think, you know, while we think that if the National Guard was in fact employed to do this work, I think what would result is uh, the essentially the states and the federal government would be pulling truck drivers away from their day jobs, serving specific uh, customers and specific uh, uh, supply lines, and pulling them to serve different routes uh, and different markets. So I think what would ultimately happen is you would have a short-term distortion in service levels across the country as all these truck drivers were pulled from their normal routes to serve a, you know, to serve a port, Port of LA or Port of Long Beach, for example. Um, so I'm not sure if that would result in a long-term solution or even a short-term solution. Um, you know, you might see a drop in congestion at the, at the ports of LA and Long Beach or wherever those, those drivers are shifted towards. But I think on the back end, you would see a decrease in service and delivery uh, for those routes those drivers were pulled from to serve. Yeah, that's really interesting that it's almost like a zero-sum game. It wouldn't be additive. Um, I want to ask you about semiconductors. Obviously, we're all learning just how many items use semiconductors and these chips and, and how hard it is to get them right now. The vast majority will be coming from Taiwan. Um, you know, does the United States or, or at least North America need to build up its own capacity again to produce these semiconductors? You know, or do you kind of see this as a short term blip that will you know, eventually sort itself out in the next year or so? We absolutely need to be investing in our domestic uh, uh, production 100 percent. And can you tell me a little bit more? I, I believe you all support the Chips for America Act, which would be a very significant, I believe, over $50 billion investment in trying to restart this industry or, or grow it significantly here in, in North America. 
um, I, I, some people have pointed out to me it, it's a good um, long-term plan, but it probably we wouldn't have a new factory truly producing this stuff, you know, for potentially five years or more. That it's just really hard to to build these very complex factories to do this work. You know, that's absolutely so. These are um, long-term investments, um, but I think they're critical investments. So let's go back. You know, 1990. Uh, the U.S. was responsible for 37% of semiconductor manufacturing for the entire world. Today, that number is down to 12%. Uh, and there's a number of reasons for why that happened. Um, specifically, if you look at a lot of Southeast Asian countries, um, a lot of those nations, uh, their governments have subsidized semiconductor uh, production upwards of approximately 30% in some countries. And that's taken a lot of market share away from the U.S. Um, but I think what's also important to recognize is that, you know, there's too much concentration. Uh, we need to be having a greater diversity in production across the world. Um, so it's, we need to continue supporting uh, where production is today, but we also need to be building out production uh, in other parts of the world. A second part to, that's important to emphasize is that demand for chips and semiconductors is only going to increase in the years ahead. You know, everything today is using semiconductors to an extent that I don't think we were using five or 10 years before in the past. If you look at everything from solar panels to charging stations uh, to just, you know, laptops themselves, uh, it all needs semiconductors. And so if we're not building not just our domestic capacity, but also increasing our capacity as a whole, um, then we're just, we're losing the thread. Yeah. Lastly, I wanted to ask you a little bit about inflation. Obviously, some of these supply chain issues are playing into rising prices that people are feeling across the country uh, and everything from cars to food and meats and whatnot. Um, but one of the things that, that's starting to come up is people are scratching their heads saying, well, I see these rising prices. Companies are telling me, you know, it costs more to ship it from wherever. But at the same time, they're also seeing some of the highest profits for companies in 50 years. And they're sort of saying, wait a minute, you know, do we really need to raise prices quite so much? Or are companies just taking advantage of this moment? What do you say to people who, who really think that you know, companies are being too greedy right now uh, by raising prices so much? Well, let me, let me tell you what I'm hearing from some of our members. So we have a... Uh, one of our members, it's a medium-sized business. They told us a couple of years ago, it, it cost them approximately $3,000 to ship a container full of goods from China here to the United States. You know, up until recently, they were telling us that they were getting quoted a price of anywhere from $35,000 to $40,000 to ship that same container over the same, over the same route. And, you know, for them, what's oftentimes in that container would be forty dollars to $50,000 worth of goods to begin with. So they're not making any money uh, on, on those shipments. In fact, they're losing money on those shipments. So, um, you know, there are some companies who I think have been able to weather this storm um, in a slightly different position. Um, in a lot of cases, that's meant that they've had to put a lot of money into their supply chain on very much sort of an emergency basis. Um, but if you, if you go back to that one member company, you know, they've got some really hard choices in front of them in terms of how they're going to be able to absorb those costs. They, they're not in a position where they can just absorb those costs and have not any impact on the prices they're charging to their customers. 
um, there's going to have to be some changes that, that take place as a result of, of, of what they're seeing. Um, and it's not just on the pricing of getting stuff here, but it's also on how they're serving their current customers, right? The delays that they're seeing at the ports, uh, where it's oftentimes taking them three to four to five weeks to get a container that might normally take them two to three days. This is having a, a huge impact on their bottom line, uh, serving their current customers and the relationships that they have with those customers. Yeah, yeah, we've definitely written about how different all of this is impacting large companies versus some of those small and mid-sized companies who have fewer options around this, who can't charter an airplane necessarily to bring their goods over. Um, John Drake, Vice President for Supply Chain at the U.S. Chamber of Commerce, thank you so much for joining us. Really insightful comments today. Thank you so much. Thank you for the opportunity. And thank you to our viewers for tuning in as we tried to unpack this very important topic right now. And oh, there is no backlog here at the Washington Post Live. We continue to have a great lineup the rest of December. Uh, no supply chain glitches here. Please check us out at WashingtonPostLive.com for the lineup the rest of the month. Thanks for listening. For more information on our upcoming programs, go to WashingtonPostLive.com.